For those of you that remain in the auditorium, uh, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. We start a new series, sort of a summer series, in this letter from James. James chapter 1, and this morning we're looking to go through verses 1 through 18. If you're visiting with us and don't have a Bible, that's fine. We do want you to have one. Everything that we do here is rooted in, grounded on the Word of God. It is not our opinion uh, or our pet peeves or hobby horses. It is God's very Word to us. And so we want you to have a copy of God's Word somewhere then under the chairs in front of you. There should be a copy of God's Word. And on, in that particular version of Scripture, it is on page 950, 950 James uh, chapter 1. This morning, then, we want to talk about patience. When we say that word, what comes to mind? Man, I wish I'd hurry up and get some. When we think of patience, typically we think of waiting. We think of not getting too sort of bent out of sorts. We don't like it oftentimes. I don't know very many of us believe that we're very good at it. As it comes to patience, we often fail when it comes to being patient. We are often impatient from little things like waiting in line uh, or trying to get home after watching the fireworks uh, to bigger things, uh, some things that we're waiting for, maybe relational milestones or raising of children or these types of things. We become very impatient, impatient with our own progress impatient with other people's progress, we tend not to be known oftentimes, unfortunately, for our patience. But patience doesn't always mean what we think it does, and I think a better definition for patience than just merely waiting is that it is serenity rooted in the character and plan of God that enables us to better serve Him. Serenity. That, that sense of calm, to be unflappable, that whatever's thrown at us, and lots of things get thrown at us in the course of a day, most of which or all of which we're not necessarily expecting, to remain serene, calm. Not that we expected what was coming or not coming, but that we know and trust that God did. And that whatever happens in our lives comes from his good hand. Therefore, in the midst of any circumstance or situation, we can have a sense of serenity because it is rooted in the character and plan of God. We know from whose hand it comes. Therefore, it is for our benefit. It's for our good. It is a blessing from him because God only has our best interest in mind. He is a God of love and care and compassion and concern. And because it is also part of his plan, these things do not ever take God by surprise. God did not look away for a second. God does not go on vacation. He does not need rest. He is always active. But there's another piece to that definition which enables us to better serve him. We oftentimes think of patience as inactivity. Patience is just waiting. And we don't even wait as we used to before because the instant there's nothing, not something interesting going on, we just reach in our pocket and pull our phone. 
So we don't even wait well anymore, but patience is not merely just waiting well. Patience is serving. It's activity. But it's activity based in God's character and God's plan. Things are not always going to go or rarely going to go the way we want them to. But we can still have that calm, that rootedness in the character and plan of God, which enables us to better serve him. And so patience, serenity, rooted in the character and plan of God that enables us to better serve him. Probably the greatest example in my own life was my father. My dad was not patient in the way that we uh, always or oftentimes uh, define the word. He was not always patient. He certainly was patient in that way as well. But I watched him go through two back surgeries, raise eight children, and I'm second of that group. And then I watched him at the end of his life go through cancer twice. And in all of these things that life threw at my father and God took him at age 52, far too young, I saw him have patience of this kind. Whatever happened, my father knew this is from God's good hand, therefore I can rejoice in it even if I don't like it and I can continue to serve him and others despite my own circumstances. It is to this that James calls us, and he's writing to a similar audience as the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who are facing persecution and will shortly face even more persecution so that they do not leave Jesus Christ, do not run from him but to him instead, and his goal is to show throughout that letter or sermon that Jesus is superior to all that they have left behind, in particular their Jewishness. All of the rules and regulations and the temple worship and all of these things, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things and thus is superior to them. James has a similar audience. He says in 1.1 that he is writing to the 12 tribes that are part of the dispersion. Jews and Jewish Christians that are around the known world, separated from the centrality of Jerusalem and that worship, but bound together and united through Jesus Christ. To these individuals he's writing. And he has a number of things to say to them. As we work through the book of James, the letter of James, we're gonna note, some have called it the Proverbs of the New Testament. When you read James at first glance, it just seems like a bunch of wisdom statements similar to Proverbs. Proverbs is difficult to follow, especially after about chapter 8, because it seems to be random, disconnected wisdom statements, just these pithy sayings that you could cross-stitch and put on your wall, and they don't seem to always have connectivity. As we're going to see, James has much more connectivity in how he puts his wisdom statements together, but he's a very practical individual. And so his letter, not that Hebrews wasn't practical, is going to hit us on the nose every Sunday from now until the end of August and then to the first two weeks of September. So patience. So follow along if we, with me, if you would, as I read James chapter 1, verses 1 uh, through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind." 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of God. And so, patience, in the midst of everything that God is going to bring our way, how do we have this calm, this settled sense of serenity that is rooted in his character and his plan that enables us to better serve him? I think in the first place then this morning we see patience for a changed perspective. This comes to us from the first word of this letter, James. Who is this? If you stick around after the service, we're going to have a Q&A, and we'll go into this a little bit further, but our best understanding is that this is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, he's a half-brother in the sense that Jesus is born of Mary the Virgin, and so James and Jesus share a mother, but they do not share the father, Joseph. James grew up with Jesus. He lived with someone who was perfect. Now, how many of you in here this morning have a sibling that thinks they're perfect? Okay, few, good, amen. Okay, testify. How many of you believe you are the perfect sibling? Okay, okay, good, amen, testify, all right. Okay, it's usually the youngest. Not picking on anybody, okay. How would you respond with a, to a sibling that was never once disciplined, never needed to be. You couldn't even blame them for the things that you've done. Anybody, everybody done this, right? Try passing the blame to perfection in human form. Now, how would you feel with a sibling who actually was perfect? Well, scripture doesn't leave us to doubt. We know how his brothers felt. In John chapter seven and verse five, it clearly tells us, for his brothers did not believe in him. They say to him in John's gospel, hey, there's a big feast coming up, Jesus. Why don't you go to Jerusalem? Tell everybody you're the Messiah. Yeah, that'd be great. Mocking him. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Would you? Would you believe that your brother was the God-man, is the God-man, God in human flesh, your brother? Would you believe that? Some of you sit here this morning and you've been praying for somebody for five years, 10, 
20. Some of you have been praying for your children for 30 years. And they don't see the truth that you do. They don't see their need of salvation. They don't understand that they are great sinners in need of a great Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. And neither did James. Had a front row seat, grew up in the same home as Jesus Christ the righteous. Did not believe that he was who he says he was. And yet how does James identify himself as he opens this letter? James, a servant of God, and who else? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that you're grown, you may have a better relationship with your siblings, but any of you have ever called yourself a servant, a bond slave to one of your siblings? I have a sibling who's a doctor, will not call him that. Love him. <laughs> Gonna call one of your siblings Lord? God changed James's perspective. And God changed yours, if you're here this morning and believe in him, no matter how hard the heart and how impossible it may seem, God can change the heart and mind of anyone to see him for who he truly is. The author of this book did not believe in Jesus Christ, his half-brother, but now does, and calls himself voluntarily a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must also have patience for a changed perspective. There's times we feel desperate. We've been praying for a very long time and we've tried every method we know how. And it's hard. But trusting in God, his character, his plan, his sovereignty can give us that serenity even when our hearts ache more than we could possibly put into words for the salvation of someone that we love so much who does not see the truth and does not follow it. They're not worshiping God. They're mocking him, they're running from him, they're living in a way that is against him and we know that the end of that way is destruction and darkness and it hurts so bad. And yet we can have patience because God is the one that changes perspectives, not us. And that's what he's in the business of doing. He changed the perspective of one of Jesus' brothers, half-brothers. I love that. Notice in the second place, we can have patience in trial. James kind of bookends here, verses 2 through 4 and then 12 through 15. If you were writing a letter, how would you start that letter? Would you start it, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials and tribulations? doesn't seem that it is correct to us. It doesn't fall in our ears correctly. But James is trying to let his audience know you can be patient, you can trust God, even and especially through trials. Because patience gives us the proper perspective. Notice verses two through four. Count it all joy, he says, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James is not pie in the sky by and by. He's not looking through rose-colored glasses. He, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. James is not saying, if you meet trials of various kinds. Life is difficult. Life is hard. It is full of trials. It is full of unexpected things, hard things. And James says, those things are inevitable. The question is, how are you going to respond to those things? It's not if you meet these things, they'll respond. It's when you meet these things, how are you going to respond? And James says, respond with joy, not happiness. 
That might come across a little weird, because it is. Yay, somebody died. That's not what James is talking about. He's not saying we're happy about a trial or something that is hard, but he is saying we can have joy. That inner peace, that inner stability that is, again, rooted in God's character, that enables us to have his perspective on things that happen. Because what does James say? What will happen when your faith is tested? It will produce steadfastness. When you meet a trial by God's grace and walk through it by his grace and with his wisdom and strength, what happens when the next trial comes? Are you better prepared for that trial? It is training always. As we mentioned last uh, Sunday, we were up at Rikapuna and one of the things Ethnos realized early on in their history, they were sending individuals into parts of the world that nobody had been in other than the tribe that was there. Very difficult. Half of their missionaries came back within the first couple years of going. So what did they need to do? They needed to train their missionaries for what they were going to face as best they could. Any type of training, military training, training for athletic endeavors, artistic training, any training of any kind is a trial in and of itself, but there is a goal. It produces something. And James says, when your faith is tested, when you say, is God still good even though this has happened? And when you come to the conclusion that he is, it engenders in you and builds in you steadfastness. And what happens when steadfastness has its full effect? You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Mature. There is a maturity that comes through understanding that God is good no matter what happens in our lives. The maturity that comes, we talk about the patience of Job, but perhaps we should better say the maturity of Job. What was his perspective on his trials? Came into this world with nothing, will leave it with nothing, Blessed be the name of the Lord. There was a settledness about Job, a maturity about Job, because he met his trial with trust in God. And when we trust God, it produces steadfastness, and when we are steadfast through multiple trials, it produces maturity in us. Notice verse 12, there's even a bigger perspective. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in a trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There is even something more to look forward to. The worst day we've ever had on this, in this life will not even be a topic of conversation in the life to come. Our darkest hour in this life will not even be a distant memory in the life to come. And so James says, in this life, when your faith is tested, I believe that God is good. Well, that's great when everything's going well. What happens when things are really not going well? Do we still believe God is good? And when we do, if we do by his grace, that produces steadfastness. It's difficult to shake us when we actually believe God is good despite circumstances. Somebody's once quipped, what do you do with the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul is the most annoying person in the world if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul, you got to stop preaching, man. We'll throw you in jail. What does he do in jail? He sings. Shut up, Paul. It's awful in here, dude. How in the world are you singing? 
This is crazy. What do I do? Can't stand this guy. Take him outside the city. Throw large rocks at him until he's crushed under them and left for dead. What does he do? He gets back up, goes back in the city, keeps preaching. You can't stop this guy. Why? Because he's steadfast under trial. His faith has been tested. He knows that God is good. And so what does he say? If I depart this life, it's better for me. I get to be with Jesus. But as long as he keeps me here, he's got a plan for me and he's not gonna take me home until he's done. And so I just serve him, no matter what comes. In this life, steadfastness, steadfastness leads to maturity and what we have to look forward to in the end is God himself. Patience also then prevents blame shifting. Notice verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. The shift here in wording, James not necessarily talking at this point then about trials, but our response to them. So trials come by the good hand of God. Hard things. Now we're tempted to leave off him and turn to something else for comfort, for stability, for answers, whatever it might be. Or if I'm experiencing these trials because of faith in God, maybe if I no longer have faith in God, maybe if I turn my back on him, things will improve. Whatever, in a, whatever way we're tempted away from God instead of towards him, James says, careful, don't blame God for that. If we can say it that way, yes, blame God, if we put it that way, for the trial, but your response to it is not to be laid at God's feet. He's not tempting you with evil. He can't do that. He's not tempted with evil, and he never tempts anybody else to do evil either. Our response to trials is ours. That is not God's fault. That is not, God is not to blame for this. And lest we think that any of the trials that we go through are difficult, the greatest trial endured by any one of us was endured by Jesus Christ on the cross. Physically, to be sure, to go through crucifixion, from which we get the word excruciating, but all the physical pain is not highlighted in Scripture. What is highlighted is the spiritual pain. For perfection to be treated like sin, for the one who never committed any act of sin to be treated as if he had committed all of the acts of sin you and I will ever commit, this is a trial we cannot fully fathom. And how did Jesus go through that? He went through that without succumbing to evil. He didn't blame God. He didn't cry out from the cross in anger and frustration against his father. He did not turn from his father. He leaned closer into his father in the midst of his suffering. And so in trial, when we lose our temper, we lose our patience, when we lose the serenity, we'll begin to blame God and turn to things other than him and turn away from him instead of to him. James says, hang on a second. Don't blame God for that. The trial, yes, that did come from God's hand. But your negative evil response to the trial and your abandonment of God in the trial and your looking to things other than God to worship in the trial, that's on you. 
So patience keeps us from blame shifting and prevents then failure. Because what does he say in 14 and 15? But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our response in trials can go one of two ways. We can see God's hand in it. We can trust him in it, not knowing why it has come, but trusting that it has come from him, and therefore there is a meaning to it, there is significance in it, there is purpose behind it. And we can lean into him, and even by his grace, become grateful for the trial, because it brought us closer to him, or we can get angry at him, blame him, turn from him, get frustrated at him, abandon him, and go our own way. James says, when we lack patience, when we abandon the calm, the untroubled reality of the serenity that comes from trusting in the character of God, when we abandon that, we're drawn away by our own desires. I don't like this. I don't want this. This isn't comfortable for me. I want something better than this. We abandon God, then we sin. And a lifestyle of sin, multiple sins, leads to, it's always on the path of death and destruction is not the way of life and light. And so James says, if we're patient in trial, it not only allows us to be steadfast, it not only brings us maturity, we become more like Christ, and it not only brings us the reward and reminds us of the reward of being with him in the life to come, but it keeps us from running the opposite direction, which is the direction of destruction and death. Sin is oftentimes a lack of patience, properly defined. What could God possibly be doing with this? This, this, can't, this isn't right. This can't be right. So he's not trustworthy. I can't trust him. Because if he would allow this to happen, something's off. This doesn't make any sense. So I gotta go a different way. I gotta look for something else to trust. And James says, don't do that. Trust in him. Third place, patience encourages prayer. Now James understands he is human as we are. Trials are difficult to wrap our heads around and they happen frequently, oftentimes daily. And so what does he say? He doesn't just say, hey, just grit your teeth, get through her. What does he say? Verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, is that not all of us? What do we do with that? Pray. Let him ask God. How does God give us wisdom? Generously. God loves to give us wisdom. He loves for us to have his perspective on life. That's what he's doing. That's why he sent Christ. He sent Christ to change us from children of darkness to children of light. To change us from individuals that were worshiping ourselves as though we were God to individuals who worship him who is the one true God. God wants us to have his perspective on everything. And when we don't, which is frequent, God says, ask. Ask me. I love to give wisdom. 
I give it generously. And notice, without reproach. Growing up, perhaps, we knew which parent we were going to ask for something from first. Because if you ask a certain parent, you might receive it, but usually after an extended lecture, a bunch of caveats, some rules and regulations. Have you ever hesitated to ask for something from somebody because of what their response might have been and because of what the response has been in the past? They may help, but it's begrudging. God does never, never begrudges helping us. He never looks on us with disdain. God never ever says, really? You're back again? You already prayed this morning. That was only five minutes ago. You're praying again? I'm busy up here. Just hang on a second. No, no. There's no judgmentalism in the heart of God. God says, come. I have omnipotent, omniscient wisdom to offer you, and I will never beride you or deride you or mock you or look down on you for asking it of me. I know who you are. I made you. I'm not disappointed that you've asked for wisdom. I'm excited. I want to give it to you. Pray. But notice how we pray. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that person one must not suppose he receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. James has more to say about faith as it continues through his book. But he starts with this. When we come to ask God for wisdom, ask expecting to receive it. But going back and forth between I trust God, I don't trust God, I trust God, I don't trust God, says, James says that, that's instability. That's not serenity. It's not the picture of Jesus Christ in the boat in the midst of the storm. Circumstances are bad, so bad, veteran fishermen are fearing for their lives. What is Jesus' response? Patience. He is serene because his life is rooted in the character of God, since he is God. Therefore, he knows the plan, and so he can better serve the disciples by his and through his patience. He's not unstable. He's not oscillating between, I believe, I don't believe. And even in that, we see the individual that comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We are frail. God is not. Run to him. Patience encourages prayer. How do we stay calm in the midst of trial? By talking to the one who has sent it our way. In the fourth place, patience maintains a proper focus. Verses 9 through 11, James makes a contrast between the rich and the poor, and he's going to do this later on in the book as well. But understand, out from the outset, James is not saying poor equals godly, rich equals ungodly. He's not saying that. Neither is Jesus, by the way. Having money or not having money is not sin or not sin in and of itself. That's not the issue. The issue is our attitude towards earthly things. How do we maintain the proper focus? James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. You may not have much of this earthly's goods, and yet, 
if you are sitting here this morning, living here on PEI, you have more than a large percentage of the world's population. But even given that, if you feel like you don't have a lot of stuff, you don't have a lot of money, what does James say? Look up. Who are you if you are in Christ? You are a son or daughter of the Most High God. You are a son and daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And regardless of whether you have or don't have any of this world's things, you have the one who made all things. That's your position in him. That's why someone who is broke can still have joy. Because our joy is not dependent on our bank account balance. Our joy is dependent on our relationship with him. Now, some believe then that James switches and says the rich who are not believers need to become believers. But I think he's, he's saying the lowly brother and the rich brother you could supply. I think he's talking to people that are both believers. And the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And James is going to pick up on this later on. But what is his point here? To those who do have of this earthly goods, and that is a blessing from God. It's not, God is not saying if you're rich, you're far from me. If you're poor, you're close to me. Although we can kind of get that from scripture. We don't read it correctly. What is he saying? That's great. Why did I give that to you? Why do you have more than others? So you can use it for me. God never blesses without expecting that that individual will be a blessing. Why does God give to some so that they can give to others? God does not hoard. There will never be an episode of cosmic hoarders where camera cuckoo goes into the back part of heaven and there's a bunch of storage lockers where God just is keeping some of his grace. That's mine. Never the attitude of God, ever. What is God's attitude? One of outward focused, outward giving. And so what God does through Jesus Christ, his son in the gospels and throughout scripture says, it's not about whether you have or don't have, it's what is your perspective on what you have or don't have who are you trusting and are you living in a way that honors him? So if you don't have, focus on what you do have in relationship to God. And if you have, focus on what you have in him. And so those things that you have are no longer what holds your heart. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. So whether you have or don't have, give and give much or give little, depending on what you have, but give. That is the heart of God. It's not about the stuff. Never was. Patience enables us to have the proper focus. And then as we wrap up, patience fosters trust in verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, James says in verse 16. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What does James call the various trials that we are going to experience? He calls them good and perfect gifts from God. What do we call them? 
annoyances, frustrations, hardships, tragedies. We have any number of ways we describe them. What, how does James describe them? He says, to my writers, to my audience, sorry, my readers, my beloved brothers and sisters, do not get it twisted. Everything that comes from the hand of your father is a good and perfect gift. It's from him and it has a purpose and it has meaning. It's intended to do good for you in some way. Because it comes down from the Father of lights, there's no darkness in God. There's not even a little piece, 1% of his heart that's a little bit twisted, a little bit selfish, a little bit against. No, God is pure light. There's no ulterior motives in God. God is pure light, and it says there's no variation or shadow due to change. As Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not suddenly going to wake up tomorrow and say, my whole character is now different. I used to love people. Now, man, what a bunch of whiners and grumblers and complainers. All right, I got to go into the smoting business. It's time to do some smoting around here. No, God doesn't change. He can't change. One of the many beauties about who he is. And so he did not give a good gift by your understanding to your neighbor and withhold a good gift from you because all gifts from him are good. Everything comes from his hand and it's all good and perfect. And notice verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If all else fails in this life, if you know him, know that he is trustworthy because you know better than anybody who you used to be before he met you. You know your heart. You know the greed and the covetousness and the jealousy and the lust and the pride and the sin. You know who you were and you know who you still are without him. But thanks be to God, you know by his grace who you are in him. And if he gave us multiplied infinite lifetimes, we could not ever repay him for what he has done for us. His grace is truly amazing. And so even if our life is short and full of pain, if we have life in him, new life, rebirth in him, we have everything in this life and for all of eternity to be thankful for. He took us from the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of light. <clears throat> he made us his sons and daughters where before we were his enemies. We hated him and now because of his grace, we love him and worship him and submit to him. Doesn't matter then what he brings into our lives. We trust that it's from his good hand It'll be for our benefit and for his glory. And so our response this morning, are we fully trusting God's plan? Do we have that sense of serenity that is rooted in God's character and his plan that better enables us to serve him and others? Nothing distracts us, shakes us, gets us fully off track. We have a goal, his glory, and to make disciples of him. 
And we can do that regardless of what comes because we know that it's from his good hand and we can trust him. Do we have that kind of patience? A patience that can wait for a changed perspective. It changed our perspective. Can we wait on God and serve him as we wait for him to change other people's perspective? Can we trust him in trial? Do we, do we have prayer? Do we have an active prayer life because we are trusting in him? Do we have the proper focus on the things of this life because we are trusting in him? And are we then trusting him and trusting him even more because of who he is and what he has done for us? That is our prayer this morning, and we have an opportunity this morning through communion to thank him for what he has done for us through Christ. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word and to be reminded of patience. Not merely waiting, but actively serving you from a heart that is calmed by you because we know and trust you for all things. Father, as someone has said, you had a son without sin, but you have had no sons without suffering. And so Father, we do face trials in this life. And we know if things continue as they are in our culture right here in Canada, we will face more trials and suffering because of our relationship with you. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to know that you are indeed good, especially when it doesn't seem that way, it doesn't feel that way. There seems to be empirical evidence that would contradict that. Yet we know, Father, you are trustworthy, you are able, and you are good. Help us to have patience, Father. Trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.